Uh, if you have your Bibles, open them to Psalm chapter 22. I'm going to look at one chapter tonight. Is this microphone a little loud or no? Does it sound okay? You're the boss back there, but I get a little insecure when I hear my voice too, too loud. Uh, Psalm 22, we continue um, to make our way through this book. Many scholars, and when I use that word scholars, I mean just people smarter than me, but uh, commentators, but they believe that Psalm 22, 23, and 24 actually go together. Not as one Psalm necessarily, but a triad, if you will, where we have, and we're going to look at tonight, Psalm 22 speaks of Christ's death on the cross. It's, uh, as I think Spurgeon said, it's the Psalm of the cross. Psalm 23 that we'll get to next week speaks of Christ's present ministry in our lives. He's the, the good shepherd. He is the, the shepherd to our soul. He's the one who, who cares for us just on a daily basis. He's the one who makes us lie down in green pastures, who restores our soul. And then uh, Psalm 24 speaks of Christ's return in glory. Who is this King of glory, the Lord Almighty? But Psalm 22 here that we're going to look at tonight is written once again to the choir director. Uh, it's a psalm that was intended to be sung in, in corporate worship. The New American Standard Bible, that's the version that we, we typically teach out of here at the church. It has this title along with it. It says, Ahijeth Ashishar. And I don't know what, what translation you're using, but uh, that is according to the doe of the dawn. Maybe that's what your translation says. A, super, a lot more helpful than what I just read. Um, but these words are to be sung to that tune, the doe of the dawn. We don't know what song that was, but it was an ancient tune that these words were sung to. This psalm, it's interesting, was written 1,000 years before Jesus was even born. And you're going to be like, well, what? well, you didn't bring up the timeline on all the other psalms, so you're going, to, you're going to figure out why I'm saying that. But what makes this psalm so fascinating is that David is writing about things that he doesn't fully, I believe, understand, um, and he hasn't fully, he's never fully experienced. Like he's going to say in this chapter, having his hands and feet pierced or his garments divided and cast lots for. So Psalm 22 is very prophetic in its nature. Psalm 22 gives us a, a prophetic picture, if you will, of the cross of Jesus. And again, David is writing hundreds, roughly 600 years before crucifixion even was invented by the Persians and then later, you know, perfected by the Romans. But David is writing about something that, again, I believe he doesn't fully understand. And that's the beauty of just being inspired by the Holy Spirit, that, that he, the Holy Spirit can inspire us to, to write things or to do things that we don't have a full understanding of. Now, this psalm, if you're taking notes, is divided into two main parts that I've kind of come up with. Um, some others would say maybe it's four parts, but I would say the first 21 verses are a prayer. They're a prayer um, for God's deliverance, God's help, God's intervention. Um, from verses 22 to 31, we see praise. So you have prayer and you have praise. Now, let me say this. Many people will go back and forth and say, well, is Psalm 22 strictly 
prophetic? Is it strictly prophetic? You know, and, and after reading and doing some study on it, um, I believe that David did feel these words that he's penning, um, but I don't believe he fully experienced the weight of these words. Ultimately, we know that this psalm, and we're going to see, is fulfilled in Jesus, in his experience, in his death on the cross. So without further ado, let's dive right in. Chapter 22, verse 1, it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those words sound familiar, don't they? Don't they? Someone even greater than David used these same words. Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. So David, as he's writing these words, he just comes straight out and says it, I think. He just comes out right away. There's no sugarcoating how he's feeling. This is a guy, remember, he knows God. He trusts God. He, He believes in God. And yet he finds himself in this place where he has to write these words, what he's feeling. That he feels like God has abandoned him. We don't know the exact context of why David is writing this. We don't know what he's experiencing. We don't even know at what point in his life that he's writing these words. But here's what we do know, especially if you've been with us for the last 21 chapters, is that we do know that David has oftentimes, many times, found himself in situations in his life where he could write such words of just agonizing pain. Before he was king, remember, um, he was on the run for 15 years just from Saul. 15 years on the run. Even after he was king, many people would rise up and threaten his life. But again, regardless of the exact circumstance, David, again, right now, he's in one of those situations, one of those real places in his life where he was in distress, he was in real trouble, and he found himself crying out, wondering, God, where are you at in all of this? Have you ever been there? God, where are you at? You can, and, I, and I like that we don't know the exact context because I think with the exact context, we kind of hone in on that. But I think this on a general feeling, God, where are you? My life's falling apart. You feel distant. Now, as much as David is writing from a personal place in his life, this psalm brings so much insight to the suffering of Jesus on the cross. And we're going to see that. Out of all of the words in Scripture, and there's a lot of them, Jesus chose these words to describe his pain. He used these words in Psalm 22 to describe the agony that he went through on the cross. Isn't that interesting? Out of all of the the, the words in in, in Scripture, you know, Matthew 27, Jesus is speaking uh, the Aramaic expression of these words. Remember when he said, Eli, Eli, lama shabbatani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me there on the cross? But Jesus, again, he's quoting Psalm 22. He's using these words, David's words, to describe his feeling when he went to the cross for you and I. And as much as I don't want to diminish the greatest story ever told in Jesus, I do believe that you and I, as we read this, we have to remember that before Jesus, that this was first written by a man named David. 
a real story, real circumstance, real feelings. Again, David knew God. David trusted God. David loved God. I love how he, he just starts, my God, my God. Anytime it's repeated, it's a, it's a term of endearment. My God, but it's, it's personal for David. It's personal. Like, Lord, I know you. I'm not calling on any other God. I'm calling on my God, Yahweh, Jehovah, the covenant-keeping God. Like, I'm calling on you in the midst of my agony, feeling abandoned by you. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. David says, Lord, I'm crying out to you, but you're not answering me. And it's not because God is unable to answer David. It's not because he's unaware of, of David's circumstances. But as one commentator said, divine silence is for the psalmist an example of the mysterious exercise of God's free will. It is this difficult circumstance that God is aware and could answer but does not that fuels the psalmist's painful confusion and dismay. Lord, are you there? Are you listening? Do you care? Can you see what's happening in my life? But silence, nothing. And I'm sure you guys have been there in your walk with the Lord. Again, this isn't before the Lord. This is like you as a believer in God. God, where are you? Do you see me? Do you care? David has no other option here. He's turning to God Almighty. God is the creator of heavens and the earth. He's sovereign. He's a, he has all authority. David's doing the right thing here. There's no one else that, could, that, that he can cry out to. There's no one else there. No one else who could understand what David's going through. And David, here, he's in this place of wondering, why? Why, God, at the moment where I needed you the most, why are you silent? He felt abandoned. The time that he needed the Lord to be strong for him, the strongest for him, he's met with nothing, just silence. This is David's moment of greatest suffering, but he couldn't see and he couldn't hear the Lord. Look at verse three. Yet you are holy. It's a good perspective to have in these times. Oh, you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. Just a side note, it's almost like David's like, God, I know where you are at, but do you know where I'm at? Have you ever been there? It's like, God, I know who you are. I know that you're sovereign. I know intellectually that you're in control of everything, but do you see me still? I know you're enthroned in heaven. You're enthroned on the praises of your people. That hasn't changed, but do you see me? Look at verse four. In you, our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. David's like, Lord, remember. Do you remember, remember your past acts of faithfulness? Remember when you showed yourself strong to them? Remember from years before. Do you remember the stories of Moses? Do you remember the stories of Joshua? Remember them, Lord. They trusted in you. And guess what? You delivered them. They cried out to you. Guess what, Lord? You heard them. They trusted you. Guess what? You, it says, didn't disappoint them. 
Lord, why now? Why me? Why this time? You can almost hear just the agonizing of his heart. Lord, they cried, you answered, I'm crying, and you're silent. Have you ever been there? And this can be the problem for all of us in comparing our story with someone else's story. When we see how God has moved in someone else's life, we see how God has provided financially for someone. We see how God brought a miraculous healing on someone's body. And we just automatically just think, all right, God, you're going to do the same thing in my life. You're going to do the same thing in this situation. But listen, that's not how God works. Yes, those stories of God's past faithfulness should inspire us. They should uh, be used to increase our faith, to increase just our trust in the Lord. But God doesn't always work the same way twice. He's sometimes doing something deeper in your heart than he did in maybe someone else's. Maybe he wants to show himself strong to them in in one way, but you another way. So David, he's reminding God of his past acts of faithfulness. Remember, Lord, when you did this. And no doubt, probably David had his own stories that he could tell. God, remember, you were faithful to me. You showed yourself strong to me. You've done this before for for me. But he says in verse 6, But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. So David, he's he's at this place in his life where he's no longer just feeling ignored by the Lord, but he feels insignificant. You notice that? He calls himself a worm. He likens his plight or situation. He's like, God, I feel like a worm here. I don't even feel like a man. And if, you're, and if you're like me, you've got to just stop and just, anytime you read something like this, just think, man, what did it take for David to get to this place in his life? What kind, again, we don't have the exact, so you got to kind of maybe let your mind go wild a little bit with your, with your imagination, but what transpired in his life to make him feel like, Lord, I'm not even a man. I feel like a worm, a worm. I mean, this is, again, this is David writing these words. David, we know, we, we love this about David. David was a giant slayer, right? When all, all, all the other children of Israel are freaking out, they're shaking, they don't, no one wants to go to battle against Goliath and, 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 and the army. David's like, you know what? With, I got the Lord and we're gonna see what God's gonna do and I'm gonna go for it. And the, he just trusted God that God was gonna deliver him and bring victory from them from a young age. David was known just to defend the sheep when a bear would come, when a lion would come. This guy was a fearless guy. And yet, in the disparity of his own life right here, David says, I am a worm, I'm not even a man. Like, what happened? What is he going through? In other words, I'm completely helpless here. It makes you wonder if it's beyond the physical. I'm powerless. You think of a worm, the first thing that comes to my mind is, is fishing bait. I'm not a fisherman, but I spent many a days growing up with my dad, who is, and that was the most disgusting part of fishing. He's like, are you, you get to put the worm on the hook. And I'm like, that's probably why I'm not a fisherman today. It's disgusting to me. 
Kevin's like, man, worms on a hook sounds good. I'm going go, to go fishing this weekend. <laughs> but David is saying, man, like a, like a worm on a hook, like, I feel used. I feel abused. I can't do anything about it. I can't even bite back. Worms stink like that. I mean, that's a good thing. They're good for bait. But I'm utterly helpless. At this point in David's life, he's as vulnerable as he could be. There was no confidence or strength that he can muster up in himself. And because the Lord allowed him to go through this season in his life, notice that it caused his enemies just to mock him. He says, I'm despised by the people. I'm hated. Everyone's just looking at me. They're making fun of me. They're laughing at my situation. They're just standing at a distance, pointing their finger, chuckling. Oh, there's David. He trusts in the Lord. <laughs> Let his trust in God bail him out of this one. Like, ha ha, that's David for you. No doubt many times David probably called on them to put their trust in the Lord when they went through hard times. Hey guys, you need to trust the Lord. I know, I know things are looking really bleak for you, but, but God is good and, and God's gonna come through for you. But now it's David's situation. How does that make you feel? Do you feel foolish? You've just spent years maybe telling, telling them about the shepherd of your soul. And now it looks like no one's caring for you. No one's leading you besides still waters, green pastures. David, it's, it's his turn now. His head's on the line. David's life is the one being rocked in this situation. Everyone's looking at David. Trust the Lord, David. Yeah, yeah. Let me taste a little your own medicine. David's like, I'm a worm. Like a worm on a fisherman's hook. I can't defend myself here. I can't even defend myself to my accusers, to the mockers. I've got no teeth to bite back on. <laughs> And here's the problem, though, with David's, or with David's enemies and, and the words that they're using. Their, their premise was that God was there for our convenience. That they knew that if David really knew God, that he would just snap his fingers, right? And God would just bail him out and meet his need instantly. That was, that was their premise. But that's, uh, listen, that's not what God does. God is about his glory, not our convenience, you guys understand that? Like, I've been walking with the Lord long enough. I get that. God is about his glory, not our convenience. God is about doing a deeper work in our lives, in the lives of the individual and not just bringing your life to ease. That's what he's after. Look at verse nine. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. David's saying, Lord, you've been with me from the beginning. From the very beginning. In every high and every low, you've been there. You brought me forth. It was you. You've been my God from my mother's womb. David's reminding God, Lord, you've cared for me ever since I was a child. You've done a great job caring for me throughout all of the years. Maybe I'm a little older now. And he's kind of being logical, how I'm viewing it. He's kind of being logical here. He's appealing to God like he's, like he's some sort of God's investment, if you will. Lord, Lord, your past faithfulness would go to waste in my life if you just let me die now. Like, Lord, rescue me. If you don't rescue me, all those years are just for waste. All, they're all for naught. Verse 11, be not far from me for trouble is near for there is none to help. David still, he's just crying out to the Lord, communicating, Lord, I'm serious this time. But notice the words that he's saying in, there in verse 11. Be not far from me. Lord, you're far away right now. Trouble's near. 
It's coming close. I've got no one else. You've got to help me. Please help me. David continues in verse 12 to describe, again, his agonies. He feels forsaken. Many bulls, he says, they've surrounded me. Strong bulls, he's intensifying this, of Bashan, have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me. That is an intimidating um, tactic as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue cleaves to my jaws and you lay me in the dust of death for dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil doers have encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count All my bones, they look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them and my clothing, they cast lots. Isn't that amazing? You guys notice some of those phrases there? Now, you know just how powerful this psalm is. Again, not only because it's describing this true experience that David had in his life, But if you can't see Jesus in this psalm, like I don't know what you're looking at. Jesus is all throughout this psalm. And 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 we're going to conclude with with Jesus at the end. We're going to actually partake in communion tonight, which I think is completely appropriate. But maybe tonight when you go home or put it on the, hit play on your U version on the way home and just think of Jesus when you're reading through the psalm. He is all throughout this chapter. But anyways, let's, let's briefly look at what David's describing here. David's describing his experience with his enemies. Like he says, like having bulls surround him. Bulls are large, strong animals. David says, they're surrounding me. They're, they're a threat to me. And David says, I've got no strength. He says, I feel like the water that's being poured out. Like I'm empty. I've got nothing. My bones are out of joint. David's just describing his physical reality. Clearly he's in physical pain. He's exhausted. He says, my, my strength is dried up. And then he says, they, they pierced my hands and my feet. David could be speaking right here about his enemies. Maybe his enemies did do this to him. Or he could just be speaking purely prophetically here. I, count, I can count all my bones in verse 17. They look and they stare at me. David is just looking at his wounds, looking at his body. He's physically been beaten, possibly. They divide my garments among me and my clothing they cast lots. David feels like so just trampled on by the enemy that they've even taken clothing from him, which we know is a greater example in Jesus that we see there at the crucifixion. And then notice verse 19. David pleads for deliverance. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. You answer me. David's saying, Lord, don't be far from me. Notice that David isn't, and he could have, But notice in here that he's not necessarily praying for God to change his immediate circumstances. But what is he saying? He's pleading here. He says he's pleading for the presence of the Lord to be with him. Be far not. 
David knew, and, and again, we're going to look at this in, in the next chapter next week, but even if he were to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he wouldn't fear evil. Why? Because the Lord would be with him, right? He wasn't going to be afraid in those circumstances because of the presence of the Lord. And that's his prayer here. Lord, be near, be near. Don't be far off. David knew that he could endure anything if he could just be aware of the presence of God in his life. And that's the same thing for you and I. It doesn't matter what we go through circumstantially, financially, emotionally, but if we are aware, guys, that God is with us, that he's walking with us, that he is the shepherd to our soul, we can endure anything. Now look at the last three words of verse 21. We're going to see just this amazing trust, but you have to admit first that there is agony, there's pain here, there's suffering through the first 21 verses, but there's so much trust in God. And now we're going to see uh, what God does um, for the one who trusts him. Again, the last three words of verse 21, you answer me, period. (laughs) Not dot, 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 not comma, like it's going to continue. No, you answer answer me. Verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you descendants of Israel. David's confidence in the Lord. He says, you answer me. I love that. You answer me. He has just poured out his heart in the last 21 verses All the way from the beginning, he doesn't sugarcoat it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He shared the pain and the agony. And now he says, God, you answer me. Listen, the crisis became bearable for David in the knowledge that God is not distant that he's not removed from his suffering, that he's not silent in his suffering, but he draws near in the midst of it. Whether David was immediately delivered from whatever was going on in his life. We don't know that. But it's at this point in this verse, and we don't know how long, maybe, he, maybe it took him months to pen this chapter. I don't know, or just maybe hours or maybe minutes. But it's at this point that he no longer feels forsaken by the Lord. The Lord has answered him. He doesn't feel forgotten anymore or abandoned. The Lord is attentive to his cry. And then he says again in verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. He says, glorify him. Stand in awe of him. Stand in awe of what he has done. I mean, shouldn't that be just the natural response in our lives to what God does in us and through us? It's just praise, just worship, adoration. God, you're worthy sharing that story with others. God, God, you've been so faithful. Man, let me tell you how God has been faithful to me. How has God been faithful to you? Tell it, tell it to someone. Praise the Lord, glorify him with your story, his story in you. Tell it to the Starbucks barista. Tell it to the banker. I know it's hard with a mask on, but this is our response to who God is, his faithfulness in your life. Man, even when I felt forsaken by God, even when I thought God abandoned me and, and he was nowhere to be seen, like he didn't, like he, he showed himself strong in my life. He came through and I thought it was the 11th hour. God did this. That's what David's doing. He says, glorify him, stand in awe of him, praise him. 
Worship him. Look at verse 24. David, he just continues to speak of, of, of the God who hears. For he has not despised, and I love this, nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. I love that. Nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to help him, when he cried to him for help, he heard. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. So in the midst of David's deep, dark season, he comes to realize, I love this. God, you've been there all along. You've been there. God doesn't despise the affliction that David has gone through. In other words, God was going to use this affliction in David's life. God was going to use this hard season in David's life. He wasn't going to waste it, but he was going to work it for the good and the glory of his name. It's that Romans 8 passage that God works all things together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. So God isn't going to waste the years of affliction. He's not going to waste your years of suffering or, or, or your years of pain. He's going to use it not only in your life, but in others, if we would just allow him. He says, Lord, you haven't hidden your face from me. I love that. In those times, God, I couldn't see you. You were right there, right in front of me. Wow. Listen, God never, never left David in the midst of his affliction. You know, I think of that hymn, one of my favorite lines in one of my favorite hymns, when darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. And maybe that's you tonight. Maybe your life is filled with darkness, maybe trials of this world, and you're so focused on the darkness that it's drowning out the light of God's glory in your life. Listen, God has not left you. He has not abandoned you. He's present with you, whether you can see him, whether you can feel him, whether you know it or not. Don't rely on your feelings. Rely on the truth of who God is, that he's present with you. He says, Lord, when I cried to you for help, you heard in those times earlier in this chapter, Lord, when I felt abandoned by you, forsaken by you, like you weren't listening to me at all, he says, your ear was actually turned toward me, not from me. God, you've, you've been faithful and I worship you. Look at verse 26. He's gonna talk about others who will praise the Lord. The afflicted, they too will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will worship before you. David's life and experience of just feeling forsaken, being afflicted, but then recognizing God's faithfulness to him, that God has never left him. He says, man, it's gonna be used for others as well. Others, the, the, the others who are afflicted, they're gonna eat too. They're gonna be satisfied. Lord, those who are gonna seek you, they're gonna praise your name. There's a promise there. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. I think of Jeremiah 29. You will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all of your heart. God, again, God will be found by the seeker. I love that, don't you? He wants to be found by you. Look at verse 28. For the kingdom 
is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. Highlight that verse. (laughs) The kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive. He's saying all of humanity. There's a day coming that everyone is going to worship. Everyone is going to honor, bow in reverence before the Lord. Both the prosperous, those who, who, who honor the Lord and those who go down in the dust. You know, I think of uh, the Apostle Paul's words in Philippians 2. Where he says, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those in heaven, those under the earth. And that every tongue will confess one day that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone will bow before him, he says. Verse 13, posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. Come on. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. He's saying God's faithfulness to the forsaken will be told to all generations to bring glory to God. Future generations, they're going to hear about David's plight, David's struggle, David's feeling of abandonment. That's us today, by the way. But just, he's just feeling forsaken by the God. They're going to hear about David's darkest day, but that's not the only thing they're going to hear. They're going to hear about how God remained faithful even when David couldn't see God. In every generation, he says, to come, we'll hear of this story of God, of his goodness, and they will say, oh, that it's, it's God. He's the one who performed it. The Lord did it, did it all. This was a work of God. He gets the credit to the people who will be born. He says that he has performed it. I love that. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. Now, as we close tonight, this psalm is a great psalm to relate with because there's many times in my life and maybe some of you here in this room tonight or maybe you're watching online, you've felt or maybe you're feeling right now that God is distant from you and that he's abandoned you or he doesn't care about your current circumstance. Maybe you feel like, God, like I'm doing the church thing. I'm coming. I'm even here on a Wednesday. Like I'm trying to hear your voice. I'm trying to see you. I'm trying to, to just be in tune with your spirit, but nothing. There's silence. We get tonight, church, the opportunity to remember and receive from this text and from this real story in David's life that God is not far off, that he is not distant, that he is near always to the brokenhearted, that he saves those who are crushed in spirit. And for those who trust and place their trust in the Lord, he will answer. We use these stories of God's past faithfulness to Fill us with faith for our future in our present circumstance. And listen, there's a work I believe that God is doing in our lives. 
And even if we can't see it now, we learn from this text here tonight that the Lord is going to use it not only in your life, that's the good thing about the Lord, but he's gonna use it in the lives of so many others for his glory, to make his name great. That's our application. We can take that to the bank. We can cash that check. That is, that is sure. That is proven. But there's so much more in this psalm that I, I want us to see briefly. The greatest application that we can receive tonight is to turn our eyes to Jesus. David wanted to run from this place of affliction in his life, but Jesus ran to it for you and I. You see, David was in a horrible spot when he felt forsaken by the Lord. But this is, in its propheticness, this prophetic psalm looking to Jesus on the cross, before all of that, you know, Jesus, before he went to the cross, Jesus had a perfect relationship with the Father. They shared perfect union, oneness, communion. Their relationship was not tainted at all, especially by sin. But on the cross, for the very first time, Jesus felt separation from the Father as he takes on the sins of the world. And in that moment, all of your sins, all of my sins, past, present, future sins, were laid on him. And the Father, it says, looks away from his Son. He turns his face away. And in that moment, Jesus experiences, in a greater sense, in a, in a, in a more profound way, what David was experiencing, this separation from the Father in an ultimate sense. The Son is in need on the cross, but the Father doesn't rescue him. Why? because he's doing a greater work. I think of 2 Corinthians 5.21, one of my favorite passages. It says, he made him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we here tonight would become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus took all of our sin, every bad word we've said, every horrible thought we've had, every, every murder we've seen and heard of, all of it, he took it upon himself. Literally, Jesus becomes sin. He becomes what God hates because God loves sinners. And the cross is necessary for this reason. It was the only way that sinners can be redeemed. The only way that sinners can be made right with God. We're, we tonight, guys, if you're in Christ, we're just the benefactors. Yeah. We just benefit from this. And as we look at this chapter in light of Jesus, this is what Jesus went through. Notice this, willingly. For you and I, he felt forsaken by God. Why? So that we can be saved, so that we could have all of the inheritance of God. It's, it's ours in Christ, Paul says in Ephesians. That Jesus, he felt this separation from the Father. He made himself of no reputation. He became the worm, if you will. I think of Isaiah, Isaiah 53. He was despised and forsaken of men. We saw that in this chapter. That's how David felt, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. A man of sorrows, not David, Jesus, acquainted with grief and like no one from whom men, and like no, and, and like one from whom men hid their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. 
Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced, not just David. In an ultimate sense, Jesus was pierced through for our transgressions. That's our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. By his stripes, we are healed. Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So it's by that blood that we're healed. All of us, all of us, we're like sheep. Isaiah says, we've gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Who? Jesus. Not David, not you, Jesus. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. Jesus willingly went to the cross for you and I, faced what we could not face so that, notice, so that we don't experience what he experienced on the cross, that separation from the Father. Jesus went to the cross so that we could have communion with God, unhindered access to God on a continual basis. That is good news. So tonight, as we participate in communion, as we receive communion, we don't take communion, that's a poor word. We receive communion. This is a gift that God has given to us in Jesus. That when we take the juice, and we take the cracker that represents the body of Jesus. We are remembering the willing sacrifice that no one took Jesus's life. He laid it down for you because he loves you. And the greatest thing, I can tell you all day long, I can tell you until I'm red in the cheeks that God hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't abandoned you. He'll be there for you. But I, I can just do one thing. Everything I would say fails in comparison to what Jesus has done for you. So if you don't want to take my word for it, take Jesus's work for it. Amen? Amen. Jesus, we thank you tonight for your work for us on our behalf. We're so unworthy. God, we're just, we're needy people. And we just recognize your work on our behalf, your sacrifice for us that you took on sin, you became sin so that we could be and receive your righteousness, that the righteousness of God would be imputed to us so that we could have communion with you. Jesus, we acknowledge you, we honor you, we say thank you tonight that we don't have this separation, that we don't have to, we'll never feel forsaken by you. You'll never leave us nor forsake us. And we thank you tonight, God. We worship you tonight as we worship the Lord in song. We have, we have time. As, as the songs are being played, you can come up. We have, there's stations to my right and my left and you can grab communion and take it back. You wanna kneel, you wanna just pray. You can take it on your own. Maybe you want to read through this chapter and just read it in light of Jesus and what he did for you. But 
Just take time and reflect on what Jesus has done for you. And then worship him, respond to him in worship.